So as we're going to dive back into the Gospel of Luke this morning, and before we do, I want to ask if anyone here is prone to losing things. Who are my my prone to losing things? Friends? Comrades? Yes. Uh, I am prone to lose things. And I don't, I'm not like completely absent-minded. I don't leave things in, in various public places. That's not how I, how I do things. I typically lose common things in my house. And Nicole mocks me regularly because I'm usually looking for my keys, my wallet, or my cell phone. And they never far, they're always somewhere in the house, but I'm usually looking for one of those three things. And most of the time, my wallet is in the washer or the dryer. Uh, Regularly wash my wallet. It's very clean. Uh, (laughs) But I lose things, and they're found, and I obviously breathe a sigh of relief every time I recover my wallet that I couldn't find, sometimes for days. Another time, uh, I've lost my wedding band, and I don't... Uh, I don't typically lose my wedding band, but when I was married, I was a little bit bigger than I was when I am right now. And so my wedding band is just, it's pretty big. And I'm, we do things outside in the summer a lot and I forget what activity it was, but my wedding band was gone. And now I'm not sentimental about a lot of things. I'm known to just throw pretty much everything away that I don't have an immediate use for. But I am sentimental about this because Nicole gave this to me when we were married some 13 years ago and it went missing and I was really sad. And so I retrace my steps. I'm out in the yard looking through the grass, you know, kicking it around, looking for something shiny. I'm replacing my steps in my house. I'm going off to my dresser, checking in, you know, my sock drawer, making sure it didn't fall in there. I see David outside and uh, we're neighbors, and David tells me to pray about it, which is great pastoral advice. And uh, he says, pray about it. God loves finding lost things. And so I'm like, that's probably a good idea. Um, I'll pray for that God would help me find my wedding ring. And sure enough, it turned up, and I found it. And I was overjoyed and immediately bought a silicone wedding ring to do anything physical outside. We love finding lost things. And you can probably see where this is going. We love finding lost things. The joy of Facebook was that we could find lost friends, people we hadn't seen in years and reconnect with them. And we like sometimes going to reunions because they connect us with people we had lost touch with. We love finding lost things. When our dog runs away or we can't find him, we, we love finding that dog. If you lose your kid in a store Parents, you know that feeling where they were there one second and now they're not? And you go to the next aisle and they're not there either and your heart sinks? Please tell me I'm not the only one this has happened to. Uh, (laughs) My head awful of a parent. Uh, But you find your kid and you're like, whew, that was scary. We love finding lost things. And I wonder if this isn't just a little window into the way God loves finding lost people. Well, today we're going to drop into Luke chapter 15, one of the most famous passages in the Bible we're going to look at together today. It's, in a, chapter, it's a chapter filled with three stories about losing things, three parables about something being lost and found. 
And we're going to focus on the last of the three parables, which is the longest of the parables that makes the biggest point. And we're going to see that God, simply put, that God is the lover and the finder of the lost. So turn with me to Luke chapter 15, and we're going to start in verse 11. And as you turn there, it's important to keep the context of the passage in mind. As we drop to the end of the passage, the first two verses actually inform why Jesus is responding the way that he is. And in Luke 1 and 15, 1 and 2, we see this. All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. That is Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes, these are the religious people, the conservatives, the people with the most buttoned up theology, they were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. That is the context. And as we move through our passage, we're going to have three points. We're going to look at the three characters of the story of the lost son. And we're going to kind of go through our passage as we go. And the first point is the lost son. Look, drop, look at verse 11 with me and we'll read through 19. Jesus also said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me a share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country, and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food, and here I am, dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. Jesus drops into this story in response to the Pharisees and scribes' complaint about this lost son. Now, we're going to learn something about this lost younger brother of the story. And the first thing is that this son is selfish. He is extremely selfish. He comes to his father with a request and says, Dad, I'd like my inheritance now. I know you have it stored up for later for after you died, but I want it now. And it should be noted that this wasn't a common practice then. It's not a common practice now. Most of you have never walked to your parent and said, hey, cough up that inheritance now. Uh, They didn't do it much then. It happened from time to time, but it was rare. And you might think it's rude to ask for inheritance ahead of time. But you see, this was far worse than rude. This wasn't just the son asking for money. This was the son, in effect, saying, Dad, you're basically only good for your money. I wish you'd drop dead right now. All you're good for is that flow of cash that's coming after you die. So I just like it now. And you're as good as dead to me. It offends the senses, doesn't it? Ooh, that is awful. Like to wish your dad was dead and to actually be willing to speak it to him in such a way that says, hey, give me my share now. You're as good as dead. It's appalling. And what does the father do in response? Does he lash out? 
son, you ungrateful child. I'm taking away your inheritance now. Forget it. Father gives it to his son. And the son takes it. And what does he do with it? We head far, far away from home to a far distant place. Far from the security of his dad, far from the safety of his home and the stability of his family. He runs far away. He goes to another country. I'm getting out of here. I'm going somewhere else. I'm going to work somewhere else. Getting as far away from my family as I can. And the text says that he squandered all that he had in foolish living. He takes his money and he just spoils it. He spends like crazy on the worst things. And we see that this son is not only selfish, but he is sinful. He's like someone, have you seen these stories about the people that win the Powerball and the Mega Millions that they like get so overwhelmed with the amount of cash that they have, that they spend it all? Like get this, USA Today says one third of lottery winners go broke within three to five years. That's crazy. You think that billion dollars would last you a long time. Three to five years is not very long. Well, this son is like that. And I don't know if he was gambling with it, but he was certainly doing sinful, awful things. He's a mess. And his sinfulness is not just in what he's done with his cash and the way that he's lived his life, but it's also what he's done to his father and to his family. He's fractured his home. He's burnt bridges. And he's run away. The son's sinful living results in him ending up with nothing. Famine comes, takes away everything. He's out of money and he goes to work for a pig farmer. And he goes to work with the pigs, which is, I mean, they're dirty animals. And in that culture, they were also considered unclean. So this was like, this was like rock bottom. This is hitting your end. This is the end of the road. He's out of money. He's starving and he's hungry, hoping that, the farmer he works for would give him some of the food that the pigs are eating. That's a pretty low place. And he realizes how helpless he is. He's run out of steam, living life his own way. And so he makes a plan. Sits there thinking to himself, man, even the servants that work in my father's house, my, those servants, I know that they're going to have a warm meal tonight. I know that they're going to wake up to breakfast tomorrow. Yeah, they're going to have to do a lot of work, but they're at least going to be fed. I wonder if dad will take me back. I wonder if I have a place there anymore after I burn that bridge. And so you know how when you, when you have to have a car, hard conversation, you, you begin to play out how the thing goes and how, what you want to say and what you're anticipating in response. And so he's like, I got it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to my dad. I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. He's hoping to go back and he's hoping that his dad won't take him into the family, but make him like a servant, just so that he can eat. So he devises his plan, and he heads back, and he sees his gracious father. Drop your eyes to verse 20 in our text. So he got up and went to his father. 
But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it, and let's celebrate with the feast. Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Son heads for home. Can you imagine the anxiety in his heart as he thinks about the potential of his father saying, get the heck out of here. You and your messed up life and your selfishness, leave. How good am I to you now? But the son heads home. His clothes are tattered, holes all through them. He got sandals, they're all busted up, the buckles coming loose. He's filthy. I mean, he's been working with pigs. He presumably has nowhere to live. He's dirty. His feet are covered in mud. He smells. And he's in shambles. And he's He gets closer to this house. His heart is beating faster and faster. His anxiety is going higher and higher. And dad's sitting out on the deck. And he sees coming down the road what looks like his son. And the dad, overwhelmed with love, emotions filling up, not with anger, but with compassion, deep compassion, sees his son far off and begins rolling up his, his garment, begins just so that his knees, so that he could take off and start running. And the, and the father sees him far off in the distance and he takes off and the father runs towards his son. And now people have pointed out that this would have been disgraceful. Nobility, noble people didn't hike up and run towards anyone. Didn't, didn't show their legs. They just, but this dad, he's willing to like, he doesn't care about what people think of him. He doesn't care about his own nobility. He takes off towards the son who was far away. The son that wished he was dead. And when he gets there, he throws his arms around him, embraces him, kisses him. And friends, if you were in the audience when Jesus was telling this, you would have been astounded at the love of the Father. The son gets down to his plant speech. Comes clean before his father. He declares his unworthiness to be his son. He admits that he was wrong. And what we see here from this, from this lost son is, is an act of repentance. This thing, I've sinned against you and I've sinned against heaven. I'm not worthy. I, I'm wrong. There's nothing I can bring to this. I'm not worthy to be called your son. But he just comes back. And just before the son gets to the part about make me like one of your hired workers, that the father interrupts him. You know, you can almost hear it. The son saying, I've sinned against heaven, I'm against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. And the dad's like, no, wait, servant, come here. My son's here. 
Get the fat calf, the the really good one, the one that we were going to sell for lots of money. Yeah, I want that one. And I want the best robe we have in the house. And get a ring. Get this kid some fresh sandals, maybe a bath too. And because he was dead and he is alive. He was lost and is found. And what the father does, he doesn't make him a servant in his house. He pulls up a seat at the table and says, you are my son and you are home. And we see the father's forgiveness on display. Because it could have been a situation where instead of telling the servant to kill the calf, he could have been like, kill my son. But that's not this gracious father. This father is just elated to have his son back. And friends, some of us wonder what God is like when we sin against him. When we might never say we wish God were dead. We might, we might never voice those kinds of things, but, but whenever we know we have, we have lived in such a way that is outside of his love, such a way that has stiff-armed God, such a way as not let him close. We sometimes wonder, what would God do if I returned? And we might even know the Sunday school answer, of course God will take me, but we don't feel that. Well, friends, Jesus writes this parable so that we know what God is like when we run to him, when we're at rock bottom, what, that, we, that we know that What he has for us is love. Deep, deep love. And Jesus wants to dispel any fear you have that says, God won't take me. Surely I've sinned too far. Surely I'm too far out of his love. We hide. We hide who we really are from God. Afraid that even though he knows, afraid that if we admit it, that he would push us away. But that is not the heart of the Father. The Father's reaction to your coming to Him is Him running to you. Messy as you are, He doesn't meet you with rejection. He meets you as His son and daughter and says, welcome home. It's excitement. The two other parables Talk about losing a sheep and a shepherd going to find the one lost sheep. In someone losing a coin and going to find a lost coin. And when they found the sheep and then they found the coin, they get their neighbors together and throw a party because that's how excited. And friends, God is overjoyed when we run to him. When the lost person runs to him, heaven throws a party. And it's the good news of the gospel, friends. The father invites the son back to the family. He tells his servant, hey, get the smoker out. Get the fattened calf. Get the Pappy Van Winkle out of the cabinet. Get the good wine. We're having a party. Find a DJ, a good one. One that can get everyone dancing. Because his son is back. So the party starts. The music's playing, and that's when we get introduced to that older, angry brother. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came near the house, 
He heard music and dancing, so he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told them, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he was he has him back safe and sound. So he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. He replied to his father, Look, I have been slaving many years for you, and I have never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, he said to him, you're always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Brother comes in from the field. Here's the music playing off in in the other room. And it's like, what in the world kind of party is dad throwing right now? Gets the servant. I was like, what's going on in there? Like, oh, your brother's back. What? This is what the party's for? You can empathize with the older brother a little bit, right? Like, with he's back? No, you mean the one that took all dad's money? That one. You mean the one that wished dad were dead and went away and apparently got, you know, prostitutes and drunk and whatever else. Who knows what else? And he is mad. He's angry. Father comes out to him. And we begin to see the older son's self-righteousness come out. He says in verse 29, Look, I've been slaving many years for you. Look at all this work that I've done for you, Dad. I've, I've never disobeyed. I've not gone out with prostitutes, Dad. You know who hasn't gotten drunk every weekend on your money? Me. That's me, Dad. I'm the one you should be having a party for. And you see, the older brother sees himself as worthy of the Father's love because of what he's done. The older brother, he doesn't live from a place of joy. He treats his dad like he owes him. He doesn't live from a place of love. Hey, all of his dad's love has been set on his older son all along. That love never went away, but this son thinks that he has to work to earn his father's love, and he thinks that he deserves his father's love because of what He's done and for what he didn't do. He's not a happy person. He's angry. He does everything not out of delight, but out of duty. I listen to my dad so that I get money, so that he loves me. He has a sense of obligation, not a sense that, hey, my dad loves me, so I listen to him. Tim Keller says it this way, and I found this helpful. He says, neither son loved the father for himself. They both were using the Father for their own self-centered ends rather than loving, enjoying, and serving Him for His own sake. This means that you can rebel against God and be alienated from Him either by breaking His rules or by keeping all of them diligently. It's a shocking message. Careful obedience to God's law may serve as a strategy for rebelling against God. If Like the elder brother, you believe that God ought to bless you and help you because you've worked so hard to obey him and be a good person, then Jesus may be your helper, your example, even your inspiration. But he is not your savior. You are serving as your own savior. The older son 
is showing that he's actually further from the father in the story than the younger brother is. Because the older son isn't relating to the father based on his love for him. He's trying to earn his love. He's trying to be his own savior. He's trying to earn what is given to him freely by grace. He's trying to leverage his father. You see, friends, God relates to us on the basis of grace. And this brother doesn't get that. He's self-righteous. And if we're not careful, our hearts do the same. We think that, that God owes us something because of the way we live our lives. Because we think that, that we, we do things for God, that we live obediently, that we, that we maybe even read our Bibles, that we pray. Not because God has loved us and has already invited us into his family, but because we think it's somehow earning us some favor with God, and that if we do that, God's entitled to give you a good life. That God isn't, that you're entitled to his, to a life of ease, to a life of comfort. And so you often hear people think like, I've done X for God, but where is he now? It's living life as an older brother, thinking that you can save yourself by what you do. But Jesus points out here that the older brother is far from the father because he isn't relating to God on the basis of grace, that God just loves. And we are called to live in response to that love. The angry brother is self-righteous, but he's also condescending. He goes on a tirade. Look, look what this son of yours did. He took your money. And as we think about this, we think about what Jesus wrote here. We need to begin aiming this parable at our own hearts. Because you see, Jesus is responding to Pharisees and scribes. People that think, people that thought that God owed them something. That they were the good guys and they didn't realize that they were far from God. The Pharisees and scribes, they were condescending towards the sinners. The people that know they needed a savior. Many, some of us, we've lived life like the younger brother. We know what that feels like. We've run home. But the warning in the passage, friend, is for anyone who calls themselves a Christian. That the warning is that you can eventually slide into an older brother mentality that forgets that God loves you through Christ. You can't earn his love. And that God is saving sinners and rejoices in that. We can easily slip into being the older brother. Might never say it out loud, but here's how this can come out. It can come out through comparison. We compare ourselves to others. Someone makes a poor decision that you did not make. You subconsciously think, that was a bad decision. A bad decision I would never make. And you compare yourself to them. And you look at yourself favorably when you compare yourself to other people. You can judge other people. Maybe someone's lived a life that's a bit more crazy, a bit more adventurous, maybe looks a little bit like the younger brother in the story, and they come to faith. And you say something like, time will tell whether they're a Christian or not. Because you are the judge of other people's hearts, after all. 
right? We say things like that, but what we really mean is they don't live life like I do, or I'll be surprised if it takes. We judge other people. And this indicates a heart that doesn't rejoice like God at the lost coming home. Finally, you can be like the older brother because you're controlling. You can can try to leverage God with your actions. I'm going to do this, God, and you owe me this. Talked about that a little bit. But the invitation from these three parables is to see the heart of your heavenly father. The heart of your heavenly father that calls you to come home to his grace. That calls you to hear the music of the party of heaven going on. When when a lost person comes, when when you say, God, I can't offer anything. Will you take me? I'm not worthy to be your son. And he pulls up a chair and slaughters his son for you. It's an invitation to come home to God, to realize that he loves you, to realize that you can really rest in this love. There's, the strife is over. He has won. And he has loved you in his grace. And to rejoice and to send this invitation out that there is a father who you can run to with your deepest, darkest moments. And he will not meet you with a stiff arm or with judgment, but will meet you in love. And to realize that we can be an awful lot like the Pharisees. Notice, we don't ever see what happens to the older son. It's open-ended. Because it's meant to say, so how are you going to do? Are you going to come to the Father's party? Are you going to realize that he wants to relate to you on the basis of grace? Because we have a Father who is a lover and a finder of the lost. And every week, our gathering is a reminder of that. And we participate in the Lord's Supper or Communion. Where we together declare that God loves and finds the lost because he sent his son to die for us. That's how much he loves us. And we declare this over our hearts. We lay down our pride, our self-righteousness. We lay down our sins and we grab a hold of symbols of broken body and shed blood. And remind ourselves that God did all of the work. He, I'm safely home with him. And we rest in the love of the Father and join in on the party of heaven and inviting other people home too. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he sat with his disciples. He took some bread and he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took a cup of wine and said, this cup is a new covenant sealed by the shedding of my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So we proclaim that together. We lay down our sins in our pride. And we come home to the Father who comes running to us. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. And there'll be um, two stations up front, someone holding uh, bread, someone holding juice. You'll take a piece of bread, dip it in the juice, and take communion. You can come forward as you're ready after I pray. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I would encourage you not to take communion. Communion's for people that believe that Jesus died for them and believe that with all of their hearts. 
If you're here today and maybe you're just living in unreconciled sin, you just know, man, I've just, I've not reconciled with God. I've not repented of my sin. I would encourage you to do business with God before coming to take communion. Repent. You have a father waiting to run to you. So let's pray together.